when a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sparky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump. They'd wait until everybody was locked up and he would open his door, run down to cell one and get a bugler can full of Sparky and take it back to his cells. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, Kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. All right. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a very special episode of Stool Pigeon Saturday. This is... In addition to this week's Tuesday Behind Gray Walls episode, and I've got a very special guest, Haley Noble, here in the trenches with me. Hey. Yeah. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you are the specialist in all things military history beyond, you know, prison history here. So, of course, I wanted to follow up with Kenneth Hastings, who had quite the military career, and ask you about his division and, you know, his military experience and what being a staff sergeant meant and how that experience could have translated into being a, a pretty successful uh, robber. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <You know>? yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it was a lot of fun uh, digging kind of into some of his uh, experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, as usual, there are some holes that I'm, I'm not able to answer. Right. But I think that's, that's just part of the job. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess we'll just dive right in. Let's dive in. So we know from uh, enlistment records that Kenneth Hastings joined the Army on July 9th, 1940, in Fort Snelling, Minnesota. And his residence was listed as North Dakota. Mm -hmm. um, we know that he was assigned to the infantry and given service number 17001100. And that is very helpful information because some yeah. of these other records... We know that there were multiple Kenneth Hastings serving in the war, and so yeah. the service number really is helpful when trying to determine which Kenneth are we talking about here. Right. <laughs> and just a side note, uh, the Selective Service, also known as the draft, that wasn't implemented until the fall of 1940. So we know that Hastings was a volunteer, mm -hmm. which yeah. is is just another interesting yeah. side note. Yeah, after his grandpa passes away and his brother passes away, it seems like he lost focus. He dropped out of high school and wanted to jump right into yeah. something else. So, well, and yeah, I mean, a lot I'm, of kids did that. I, I was like, going to yeah. say, unfortunately, we see that quite a bit where mm -hmm. people need direction. Right. The military is oftentimes that answer. Yeah. Oh. Uh, give you some kind of focus. <laughs> yeah. Some purpose. And yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. So we don't know once he was in Fort Snelling where he completed basic training. During this time, there were many, many locations yeah. to complete basic training uh, since there were so many different enlistments going on. Now, you know, the Army has five. Fort Benning, Georgia, Fort Jackson, South Carolina, Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and Fort Knox in Kentucky. So now, you know, it would be fairly easy to say he was at, you know, one of these five places. But Interesting. back in 1940... We aren't so lucky that there, there were all kinds of different locations. So we're not sure where he completed yeah. basic training, 
if somebody were to join from Idaho, where would they be? It depends on the service. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, So typically, Air Force goes to Texas. Mm. As you can see, most of the Army is in the South. Yeah. Navy, I believe, usually goes to Chicago, like the Great Lakes area. That makes total sense. Yeah. 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 It just kind of depends on which branch you decide to join. Perfect. Uh, Marine Corps... If you're in the western part of the U.S., uh, mm-hmm. you would go to San Diego down uh, Camp Pendleton. And if you are on the eastern side, you go to Paris Island in South Carolina. Okay. So Marine Corps is a bit different. They have two mm-hmm. geographically. So, yeah, it just really depends on yeah. what service you want to join. You know, I'm always impressed by your knowledge of oh, all this military well, thank stuff. thank you. So, yeah. <laughs> Let it all go to my head. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just now talk about length of time. So boot camp was roughly three months long. Mm-hmm. Um, depending on the time period during the war, it could be shorter than that, you know, if they needed replacements fairly quickly. Uh, and then you would have been given another couple of months to kind of train in your specialty. Mm-hmm. So whatever job you were assigned, uh, you would then have more specialized training. So everyone kind of did the basic boot camp. Mm-hmm. And then from there, that's where every, you kind of split up based on your job. Yeah. Hastings did join the infantry. So we know that, you know, he's a grunt. You're, they're the foot soldiers. I think you talked about this already, but we know from his marriage license that was dated uh, November 24th, 1941. It says he's living in Fort Lewis, mm-hmm. Washington, which is a military base. So it's possible after boot camp, he could have been stationed there. You know, it's hard to know for sure. Right. Meanwhile, we do know that eventually he gets assigned to the 7th Infantry Division. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm just going to kind of talk about their history a little bit. Yeah. Um, there again, it's hard to know if he was with the 7th the entirety of his service, mm-hmm. or if he would have been transferred to a different unit, or, you know, we don't really know those circumstances. So for a little bit, I'm just going to talk about the 7th Infantry. If he was part of it, this is some of the stuff that he would have been doing. So we know that the 7th Infantry Division was activated in July of 1940. They were based out of Fort Ord, California. So, you know, who knows, maybe he went from Fort Lewis down to California. Yeah. Because uh, then for a while... Uh, the 7th is kind of moving around California depending on the type of training they're undergoing. So they were at Monterey and San Luis Obispo for a while practicing amphibious assaults. And then they were out in the Mojave Desert. Uh, and that kind of points to they were being told, you're going to North Africa. Yeah. Oh. Chase, chase Rommel around in the desert. Oh, my gosh. Um, but then they took him out of the desert. <laughs> Because, you know, the, the military, they like to change their minds. Yeah. So so they went back to the coast, and from there they were working with uh, some Marines uh-huh. who are, you know, famous. Their, their primary job are these amphibious landings and amphibious okay. assaults. So they're kind of working jointly on how, how do we land on a beachhead? How do we successfully yeah. get on these different islands? And so that's when, you know, you kind of point to, they're going to the Pacific. <laughs> all right. So they weren't D-Day in Normandy or anything like no, that. So that's, no, no. All right. So we're, they're we're going talking, to Japan. Yeah, we're talking different theater. You know, possibly if they did go to North Africa, they could have been part of the invading force in Italy. Oh. But since, you know, plans yeah. change. Yeah. 
they were sent to Alaska. Oh, all right. <laughs> so a lot of people don't know Alaska was invaded. I mean, not like invaded, invaded, like we talk about, but uh, the Aleutian Islands there uh, are technically part of Alaska. Wow. And we know that the Japanese did invade some of those places. Okay. Uh, you know, they thought that perhaps if they could get some of these islands, that would then translate into more mainland Alaskan mm-hmm. invasion. Okay. So, I'm going to give a little bit of background now, just kind of on the Japanese thinking i feel like it's it's helpful to contextualize things a little bit so i mean i i would hope most americans know that pearl harbor was bombed on (laughs) december 7th 1941 in those same attack plans the philippines thailand and other pacific islands were also invaded Mm -hmm. technically the philippines was on december 8th but because of the international dateline prior to these invasions we know that the japanese colonial empire had been actively expanding Mm -hmm. for many years prior to this. Uh, We know that they were already occupying China, Korea, Manchuria, Vietnam, Cambodia, and a lot of other little tiny islands. So basically their goal was to create the greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere, which in their minds they wanted basically all of these Asian places Mm -hmm. and in uh, Southeast Asia free from Western influence and Western oppression. Right. So they wanted to expel any in French Indochina. Uh You know, they wanted to get the French out of there. They, you know, they wanted not to have any of that Western influence Mm -hmm. in their co-prosperity sphere. Yeah. And I feel like, like they've, even today, they are so good at just keeping their culture so isolated, I guess, from outside influence. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was a, a huge focus for yeah. them. And so they were trying to spread that, though, to other mm-hmm. Asian nations. I Okay. So that was their so, motivation behind... So the ideology was to create this co-prosperity sphere okay. with, you know... These, yeah. these different cultures working together. Whether they liked it or not. But I mean. <laughs> in reality, it is Japanese colonialism. Right. Where they were trying to expel Western colonizers, and mm. instead they just inflicted their own Japanese colonizers instead. Okay. So, you know, what they theoretically wanted to do versus reality yeah. didn't match up. <laughs> And if you think about it, Japan is a fairly small place compared to mm-hmm. many parts of the world. They don't have the natural resources that a lot of these other places do. So there's things like oil that they needed for their war machine that they couldn't produce there in Japan. Mm-hmm. So by you know, pushing out all the Westerners, oh, hey, Japan is going to keep that oil for themselves. They were trying uh, to be proactive knowing mm-hmm. that this was going to... Yes. Accelerate into a, a giant... Yeah, wow, okay. Yeah, so they basically had spread all the way from the Solomon Islands down mm. by Australia all the way up to the Aleutian wow. Islands. They were all the way in like Singapore mm-hmm. and Malaya and all of these places. So it was very widespread. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't all at once. All of this mm-hmm. took time, and mm-hmm. they were just slowly creeping in on all of these other places. Wow. So the United States... Once they joined actively joined the war mm-hmm. um, against Japan, they divided the strategy of island hopping. And so that was, first of all, to repel these Japanese occupiers. 
uh, and to cut off their supplies. So, you know, if you if you don't have the oil, that that's kind of a big deal. <laughs> it's going to cripple your industrial complex. Yeah. And so, rather than trying to capture every little island that the Japanese were occupying, the U.S. Mm-hmm. said we're just going to choose the key ones, so that. That way, we're not spreading our resources thin, trying Mm. to occupy every single island. Instead, we're going to pick the most important ones and then cut off supplies to the rest of those islands. So you're basically just interfering with all these supply routes. And again, at the early part of the war, battleships Mm -hmm. were still kind of thought of as the most important part of your naval fleet, where the bigger the battleship the more mighty your navy is mm. and you know the more you have the more successful you're supposed to be mm. well it's during this war that we start to see the importance of aircraft carriers until that significance is you know kind of until somebody had the epiphany hey aircraft <laughs> carriers are really important right. really the US needed those islands so they they could build airstrips mm. and bases so that as they do creep closer and closer to Japan, you know, if you build an airstrip on an island that's closer than one of the other bases that you were occupying, mm-hmm. that's going to give the pilot then more time to complete whatever they were doing, whether a bombing mission right. or whatever, um, more time in the air because you're constantly worried about your range. Yeah. You know, are you going to have enough fuel to make it back to your home base? Yeah. So. As the U.S. is capturing these atolls, that's Mm kind of what the small islands are called, Mm -hmm. um, they're building airstrips. So that frees up more of your carriers Mm -hmm. and gives you a better jumping off point to then bomb different places to, you know, do whatever you're going to do. So that's kind of the whole strategy of what we're going to see. The seventh was technically, even though Alaska, we don't really think of it as the Pacific. Right. It was yeah. part of the, the Pacific theater. So that's where the 7th First Seas Combat, uh, they're deployed to the Aleutian Islands. They land on Attu Island on May 11th, 1943. And they're able to push back the Japanese that were occupying there. Huh. So it's kind of funny for me to think that they're in the Japanese theater and yet here they are in this like snowy, icy place Jeez, <laughs> where yeah. usually we think like jungles. <laughs> really? Yeah. So yeah, they're able to take Atu Island, repel the Japanese out of the Aleutians. And at this point, the 7th is made up of the 17th, 32nd, and 159th regiments. Okay. You know, some people are into that and want to know these things. <laughs> and I'm sorry, a regiment? Is that just like a smaller group? Yes. Okay. So yeah, so all of these terms are different sizes of units. Okay. A division is about 10,000 to 18,000 men. Uh, divisions make up a corps. A regiment is kind of the next lower okay. status. And then you get battalions and companies and platoons and squads. and. <laughs> okay. So right. it's, it's a whole organizational chart. And yeah. it just uh, is meant to signify size. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> All right, so 17th, 32nd, 159th yep. regiments are all Parts comprised. of the 7th Division. Okay, all right. You know, it would be helpful here again with Hastings if we knew, okay, mm. 7th Division, what regiment. Yeah. You know, there again, it would make tracking his movements easier. Mm. 
it's it's just something that helps yeah for sure <laughs> break things up a little bit yeah but anyways yeah after after they're in the Aleutians they get sent to Oahu Hawaii so kind of go from cold extreme to a nice tropical beaches yeah. and you know they just do more training on amphibious landings the, the 159th state in Alaska so they didn't oh. they didn't get the tropical paradise but that's okay. <laughs> Can't have everything we yeah. want. <laughs> yeah. So next, the seventh take part in the Eastern Mandates campaign, and they landed on Kwajalein Atoll in the Marshall Islands. And they're again doing this island hopping strategy. So the Marshall Islands are important because this was kind of the first step in penetrating the islands that were under Japanese control. So we know that once you have the Marshall Islands, then, you know, kind of the end goal is the Mariana Islands, which they would then use to launch attacks on mainland China. So you can kind of see the different steps that we're going to talk about. At this point, the 184th Regiment joins the 7th Division, and those are pretty much the three regiments that we'll see for the rest of this discussion. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so they're able to capture Kwajalein, and then next they were on to Leyte, which is the largest island in the Philippines. Uh, They landed there on October 20th, 1944, and that one actually takes a while to secure. Uh, They don't officially call it secure until December of 44, Mm -hmm. so you can see even though we're talking about relatively small pieces of land Mm -hmm. the fighting is just brutal and it takes a long time yeah just due to the japanese they're able to create defense in depth which Mm -hmm. basically means they're building all of these underground tunnels they're able to camouflage things they're able to basically they have home field advantage Mm -hmm. where here you've got this landing force and here's the japanese just waiting for you so these battles take a long time, yeah. and it's really sad because you're like, really, all of those deaths for this piece, right. tiny island? But, I mean, that was part of the strategy to yeah. uh, get these airstrips, so yeah. it's really sad. As we are talking about sad, destructive things, probably the most unfortunate, tragic battle in the Pacific is what comes next. Oh. Any guesses on what it was? I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. That's the thing. That's why you're here. I have no idea. <laughs> um, so from the Philippines, the seventh was sent to Okinawa in the Ryukyu Islands. They landed there on April 1st, 1945, uh, and it was the bloodiest battle oh. in the Pacific you know, there were high casualties on both sides. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing that makes this one stand out is that there was a fairly significant civilian population that was there. Mm-hmm. Whereas in these other islands, the people that were living there had either evacuated mm-hmm. or, you know, it was just some little island that nobody lived on. It was yeah. uninhabited. But here there was a fairly populous indigenous population of the Okinawans. And... So we see high deaths of the civilians as well, which just kind of adds another layer to to really the bloodshed that we see. Yeah. Basically, we know from propaganda pamphlets and things like that um, that the Japanese were telling the locals, you know, the Americans are beasts, they're mm-hmm. monsters. So there's this idea that the Japanese are telling the Okinawans, 
it's better to commit suicide than be captured. So we see mass suicides, mm. Okinawans jumping off of cliffs, detonating grenades. So, you know, on top of just these battle casualties, you also have this terrible loss mm. due to suicide because of the propaganda aspect of things. Right. Which, there again, that's just, it's so sad. And because we see large civilian populations, we also see mass rape from the Japanese and the Americans. And, you know, that just adds another layer. So you just feel so sad for these people where the Japanese have confiscated their food. Mm -hmm. They're living in these horrendous conditions. So basically before the army would storm the beaches on some island, there would have been heavy shelling artillery from the Navy. So this island had been bombarded by shelling You've got no food. People are starving. You've got just horrible conditions where we, and we have accounts where American soldiers are like, you know, we couldn't tell the difference between a civilian and a Japanese soldier. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Americans are shooting Okinawans. They're committing suicide and then mass rape. So Okinawa is really one of those places that is just terrible to talk about. But it's important, too. And I mean, the U.S. still has a base there, and it's still a problem that we deal with where typically, I want to say, Marines are stationed there, mm -hmm. and you know, there's still conflicts that mm -hmm. occur occasionally yeah. from Marines that are stationed there yeah. and the civilians. So it's, it's really sad. And so who knows? We, d we don't know if Kenneth Hastings would have witnessed any of this. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hard to say. Yeah taken part in it, mm -hmm. experienced it, yeah. So we know that the battle lasted until the end of June in 1945. And, you know, the reason for all of this is because Okinawa was strategically located. That was going to be kind of the key, the stepping mm -hmm. stone to then invading mainland Japan. Oh, yeah. So it was really important in the eyes of the military because here this is going to be the staging area. Mm -hmm where we're going to invade from. But, of course, you know, we know that Japan does surrender. Mm -hmm. So there is no invasion. So we get the, the Japanese surrender on August 14th, 1945. And then we also get a formal ceremony. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of two different dates that we can talk about. The formal ceremony was on September 7th, 2nd, 1945, aboard the USS Missouri. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the famous picture that a lot of people think of with the Japanese in their suits and here they are surrendering. And the seventh then would stay, not, not in Okinawa, they would then be transferred as part of the occupational forces in Korea. So they were there for a while. Uh, we can now, you know, kind of focus back on Kenneth Hastings because there are a few interesting things here when we just focus on him. Yeah. You know, and a couple of puzzles, too. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Hopefully we get those solved someday. Someday. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I will say we did send off to the National Archives mm -hmm. for his military file. So hopefully some of our holes can be answered. But, yeah. you know, that'll take a couple months. So who knows? We'll post a part, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. In the if, future. If we do end yeah. up getting his records, we will definitely do an update. Yeah. <laughs> You know, see see how much I got wrong. <laughs> oh, I mean, with what you have, like, I, I can't say you got it wrong. You just... We don't know. This is all, this is kind of speculation, but kind of mm -hmm. like, you know, it's 
with your historical knowledge of of war history and researching the seventh, which is fascinating in itself. I like I watched a couple YouTube videos and they're there it was a proud division. Like it sounds oh, yeah. like they had some amazing battles and yeah. totally. Yeah, but, uh, I know researching all of this. I mean, even though we are talking about the army, one of my favorite miniseries is of course the Pacific from yeah. HBO. Yeah. And I mean though that focuses on the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. So different branches, but that can kind of give you a, a picture, yeah. a little, a little visual. Definitely, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so go home and watch it because it's amazing. Yeah, and then rewatch <laughs> Banner Brothers. <laughs> oh god, those those two are so good. I love them so much. Definitely <laughs> gets nerd out, and it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. All right. So Kenneth Hastings. Kenneth Hastings. Couple Let's get puzzling through. things. Okay. So. Online, we're able to find a couple hospital admittance cards, so we know that he was wounded. One is dated uh, March 1943. But the interesting thing is that the location on that card uh, lists Morocco, Tunisia. So was Kenneth Hastings in North Africa? Maybe. We, I mean, this certainly points to that. Yeah. It said he was wounded in a mine explosion, Mm -hmm. and he was then discharged June 1943. So at this time, the 7th would have still been training for their initial assault on the Aleutians. We don't know. You know, maybe he was assigned to a different unit Mm -hmm. before he joined the 7th. And maybe he did go to North Africa. But on his intake form, he only lists the Pacific as the theater of service. Right. So... You know, those are the things we have to deal with as historians. Mm -hmm. Was there a mistake? And I would chalk it down to, oh, it's another Kenneth Hastings, but it has his correct service number. Right. And that was one thing that I I found that record and I was like, that's not, this is incorrect. It has to be incorrect. And I didn't even think to look at his, the service number on it. Mm -hmm. And when you were like, yeah, that's his service number. I was like, no, what? (laughs) There's no way. The plot thickens. Yeah. Why was he in North Africa? Yeah. And, and we don't know. That's, that's, so... that's one of these these mysteries. Yeah, so tune in in a couple months when we get these, hopefully, knock on wood, All we right. get these uh, Shout records. out National Archives. We're, we're counting on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we want to solve this mystery. Uh, there's another hospital card from April 1944. Uh, that one, no locations listed. Oh, yeah. So who knows where he was when he was wounded again. Uh, it was... Another mine explosion. So yeah. poor guy <laughs> keeps getting blown up. That would, I guess, if somebody else stepped on it and he was nearby, that would that would rock you pretty hard, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah so well, and you could you could have shrapnel. Yeah. Or which which you can kind of see on his brutalian. He, mm-hmm. he does have a lot of cuts and scratches and things. So yeah. All right. Uh, you know they don't really say the severity mm-hmm. of the wounds. I mean, he is discharged from that one in June 1944. Mm-hmm. So he was a couple months, yeah. you know, not, nothing super duper serious yeah. because in both of these cases, he was discharged back to active duty. Mm-hmm. So he was still able to return. Yeah, he wasn't sent home. No. Wow, that's resilience. <laughs> <laughs> right. I think after my first, I'd be like, so when is this over? When can I go <laughs> home? Because I'm done. I don't want any more of these. Yeah, and I mean, unfortunately, we do know that there were some injuries that were inflicted on yourself. Or, yeah. you know, you get a buddy to shoot you in the foot oh. so you can go home. And yeah. it's really sad, but it happens. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> well, and then, I worry that would be <laughs> just because I can't hurt people. I just it make me so sad to have to hurt somebody. Yeah. Have you seen Hacksaw Ridge? He could be like that doctor. Oh, okay. He went into battle unarmed, and he he saved a bunch of people. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I'll be like that guy instead. <laughs> he was a pacifist, so he he swore. Hacksaw Ridge. I'm mm-hmm. gonna have to watch that. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's man. good. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Anyway, Kenneth. He just keeps getting up. He just keeps going back to battle. Okay. Uh, And on his intake paper, he does say he got a purple heart with two clusters. And I mean, each time he's wounded, he would have gotten a purple heart. So we know that he was wounded at least three times. Yeah. We have two of those. So I'm, you know, there must have been a third for him to get that second cluster. But it's hard to know. Again, Mm. we just don't have those records. And and how many... uh, how many purple hearts is typical for a person? Like, is this abnormal that he has three? Um, no, I mean, okay. it, it really depends. There are people, yeah, that you keep getting wounded, keep getting wounded. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're never serious enough to take you out of service. Yeah. But they need they need manpower. Right. So yeah, if, if you're if, willing to... Yeah. If you can still fire your weapon and mm-hmm. be not be a hindrance... To your unit, they're gonna send you back. Yeah, man, and which and, would probably boost morale even more. Like, <laughs> well, uh, and we do know that from a lot of the books I've read, at least, um, there is this sense that you don't want to be left behind. Mm, you yeah. want to get back to your men. These are your yeah. friends, your buddies. You oh, yeah, you don't want to be reassigned yeah. to some other unit. You want to get mm-hmm. back. You want to get back to your your guys. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there is part of that as well. And you know, with this time we. We don't know about brain injuries. Mm-hmm. We don't know about psychological issues. Right. So most of these injuries would have been physical. Yeah. Wow. And and a concussion like a mine. Yeah. Like that's gonna that's gonna affect you oh, mentally totally. and physically. Totally. And... I mean, they didn't even start looking at that kind of stuff until the two thousands mm-hmm. when you've got these Iraq and Afghanistan veterans coming back. Yeah. And, you know, they had some sort of brain injury and here we have these effects that are still still plaguing them years later. Right. Yeah, I kind of talk about his, most likely his move towards alcohol. He dies of alcoholism probably due to this yeah. PTSD, you know, what we'd call PTSD now. And Totally. And yeah. I mean, it's a common thing to see veterans kind mm. of struggle to, to re-enter civilian society. Yeah. Where you do have PTSD... You do have some have just this sense of loneliness. Mm-hmm. Some, you know, when you've been trained to be a killing machine, you know, mm-hmm. you come back, you try to get a job. You don't really have any other experience right. except this stuff that you did in oh, battle. Man. All right. Let's keep going. I'm sorry. Right. I keep stopping you. <laughs> no, no. It's all good. Uh, another thing that he notes on his intake mm-hmm. paper is that he went AWOL for mm-hmm. 156 mm-hmm. days. Yeah. So AWOL, uh, away without leave, which basically means you left without permission. Yeah. So we don't know when that was. I mean, presumably it wouldn't have been on one of these islands because there's really nowhere for you to go. Right, yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping these records kind of point out. I hope so. A date span so that we have an idea of where yeah. he was at during that Because, I mean, he did. He was court-martialed, so mm-hmm. all of that legal paperwork, I hope, would be there. Yeah. And, of course, all of that would have been dated. To kind of point us in the right direction. Oh, I did find him listed on a ship 
manifest. Oh. Uh, so we know he came back to the U.S. on the USS Monticello via New York Harbor on June 26, 1945. But there again, that makes me wonder, why did he come via New York? Yeah. Why is he not coming to, what, California? Yeah. San Francisco or San Diego. Yeah. Okay. That... <laughs> uh, <sighs> the life of a historian. Yeah. So. I don't know. I what? don't know what to tell you, Anthony. Why? <laughs> and, and what is that date? Uh, June 1945. So okay. So he's he's then honorably discharged, you know, mm-hmm. like a week later on July 1st, okay. 1945. <sighs> so confusing. <laughs> wow. All right. Uh, yeah. So next we're gonna talk about some of the like medals and stuff that he writes on his intake form. Okay. There we now we have some <laughs> solid things like literally well, solid. Still, still, still no. confusions. <laughs> <laughs> so thankfully in prison intake forms you know there is a sheet that says any military service you can write down Mm -hmm. and so this is where he is writing out what citations he was awarded we know that he got four arrowheads for invasions and so that basically means you took part in some amphibious landing who knows where yeah which four yeah Yeah. i mean it could have been for (laughs) the marshall islands or Mm -hmm. okinawa or we again we don't know morocco <laughs> right <laughs> what Jeez. right he's he's hanging out in casablanca <laughs> yeah. uh and he also says he has three campaign ribbons so i'm guessing the asiatic pacific one mm-hmm. but then the other two it's unclear you know maybe he got a philippine liberation ribbon plus he would have received a world war ii victory medal oh. but yeah, again, it's hard to know for sure. Yeah. Uh, and then he also claims that he got seven battle stars, which battle stars, there's kind of a couple different terms for them. They're also called campaign stars and bronze battle stars. Mm. Um, I'm not sure which one he's referring to, but typically they denote that you've got a duplicate award of one you've already received. Oh. So okay. it's hard to know then what he's earning these stars Mm -hmm. for yeah and then another mystery is on his headstone so we do have a picture of his headstone yes and on it it says bsm Mm -hmm. which that usually stands for bronze star medal uh which is awarded for valor in combat and it's it's very prestigious Mm -hmm. like it's a it's a big honor to have that awarded to you i searched and searched and searched and he is not on any list that i know of which makes me think that whoever, you know, coordinated his headstone maybe was confused with the bronze battle star. Oh. They're, they're not the okay. same, but, you know, maybe somebody didn't know that. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, that is something we deal with. There are typos. There are mistakes. Oh, on, like, military markers? Uh, sometimes. Yeah. In, in I, mean, I mean, human made, of course. Right. Gonna you know, issues. there's going to yeah. be errors. Oh. Well, and even, I think on his headstone, it even lists his birth date as in 1922, mm-hmm. but in a lot of the stuff, it's 1921. Right. Yeah. That's when I first found his <laughs> headstone, I went, are you kidding me? Like, is everything that I have a little bit off, or is this real? I mean, he lists Did on his enlistment forms 1921 as mm-hmm. birth year. 
So there again, I'm wondering if the headstone's just wrong. And it's Kenneth R. Hastings. Yeah. So. Well, and I mean, he's buried in Seattle. We mm-hmm. know he went back there. Yeah. So, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Did uh, it have his service number? No, it doesn't. Okay. So. Two Kenneth R. Hastings that are born <laughs> in 1921, 1922. Well, and to then both die. Both in the 7th infantry. Yeah. Die, die on, on the, the same, same day. day. <laughs> like, that just seems a little too much. Right. Yeah. That's what that, I was like, this has to be him. So, but the like the medals, yeah, I remember yeah. looking up what those acronyms meant and being like, "But he said here that it's this thing, right?" What well, is and if, the truth? If he was awarded a bronze mm. star medal, like that's a big deal. I would think that'd be first on your list of citations, yeah, but yeah. it's not. Oh boy! <laughs> All right, fun stuff. Yeah. So the last thing I want to talk about. Uh, is the fact that, again, on his headstone, mm-hmm. Hastings is listed as a staff sergeant, yeah. which means at the time of his discharge, that was the highest rank he had achieved. So as an enlisted man, really there's just one avenue for yeah. promotion. Um, so when you're enlisted, of course, you're just a private. No, no authority whatsoever. Yeah. But uh, at some point, he was awarded sergeant and then staff sergeant. Mm. So that means he would have been in charge of a squad, which was, you know, four to six men, mm-hmm. which is then part of a platoon. Mm-hmm. So a staff sergeant is what we refer to as an NCO, which mm-hmm. is a non-commissioned officer, which means that you're still part of the enlisted force, mm-hmm. that you are still one of the guys. Um, you know, you didn't c- come from the officer corps. Yeah. Uh, There is a bit of a division there between enlisted and officers, for good or for bad, uh, to just kind of keep that authority or Mm. whatever it is. So to be part of the officer corps, usually, uh, I mean, that means that you've received your commission. And you can get that through one of the military academies, through officer candidate school, uh, through an ROTC program. And that means that basically you're sent out as a second lieutenant. So you're kind of given this commanding spot from the get-go. Okay. Whereas, you know, a staff sergeant, you, you're promoted through the ranks, you've proven yourself, you get a little more responsibility. You're the, kind of the go-between between mm-hmm. the enlisted and the officers. Okay. So, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a big deal because you're kind of the, the core of the unit Mm -hmm. the the enlisted men look to you for leadership and guidance Mm -hmm. so it's a big deal we don't know when he was promoted yeah again another question (laughs) but would would his file kind of indicate when this promotion uh, it should yeah okay who knows but you know we we don't know how (laughs) how complete it will be if I mean, I tried yeah. to look up another veteran, and they're like, sorry, these records were burned in a fire. Oh, no. <laughs> and you I waited, like, three months for those? Uh, yeah, like three and a half. Oh, yeah. Um, these ones, though, I'm, I'm pretty sure in the date range. Hopefully, they, they did not get burned up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, so that's kind of a look at maybe some of the things that Kenneth Hastings experienced. Yeah. Certainly... He was part of the 7th Division at some point. Mm -hmm. We know Company M. But all these questions. So I don't know if I was any help or not. (laughs) No, I think you were. Because, I mean, it 
definitely if he was part of these invasions of these these little islands, you know, mm-hmm. he's going to experience some pretty traumatic battles totally. and it's going to affect him psychologically when he returns in of you know July 1945 when he's discharged and, well, and tries we, to join the workforce like right and uh, we know that not long after he is sent to McNeil Island yeah exactly so really he's not out of the military for very long before mm-hmm. he starts getting in trouble yeah and then almost immediately he's paroled from McNeil and starts a band you know a a group He's probably the staff sergeant. He's probably the one leading it, as as you heard in the description from William Owen, that he always did everything to like the highest degree. Yeah. So it's it's yeah. not an unreasonable assumption. Yeah, <laughs> his his robbery where they're all wearing a uniform, they're all wearing bandanas and stuff, and how militaristic like yeah. every step was totally during that. You know, I I really have tried to dig for other unsolved robberies that occurred around that time to and try to pinpoint. See so this kind of helps. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, that is one thing with talking with veterans is mm-hmm. this kind of regimented lifestyle yeah. does have its benefits outside of the military. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of gives you a little bit of control yeah. and at least gives you more of a direction than before you were in the Definitely. military. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well... Anything else you want to add to uh, this? No, I don't think so. All right. uh, if if I got anything wrong, please correct me, oh, listeners. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I want to know if you have any more information. Yeah, hit me up. Yeah, I I just want to solve that mystery from the administrator or the chaplain saying that you know Kenneth was almost as decorated as Audie Murphy. You know, which I mean, in yeah. my opinion, that's false. That's yeah. not. That's simply not true. <laughs> Which is good to know because yeah. it seems like the prison administration, everybody really respected this guy because of his military. I mean, he's still deserving of respect, yeah. but, you know, he's not the most decorated gotcha. soldier or anything like that. That's great. That's a good final word here. All right. All right, Haley. Thank you so yeah, much no. for being on. Thanks for having me back. I get yeah. to nerd out. I love it. <laughs> well, if uh, I say do your own time. Do your own number. That's exactly it. All right, everybody. We'll see you on Tuesday. Bye. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, Follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.